It is 2.26pm on Friday the 9th of October as I record this. Uh, Monday of this week was my mum's birthday. So I wish her a happy birthday through the airwaves. I'm not 100% sure if she listens to this. But just in case she does listen to it, happy birthday to my mum. Um, tomorrow, my family are getting together to celebrate at my sister's house in Ely. Uh, but sadly, I can't go uh, because I have the plague. I probably don't have the plague. I don't know. I've got a cough and a sore throat and a little bit of chest pain. I don't have a fever and I can smell and taste everything fine. But because we're living through the apocalypse, uh, it means I need to be a little bit more careful. And I don't want to risk potentially giving... Um, the horrible COVID illness to uh, my family, just in case that's what this is. I suspect it probably isn't, but I've ordered a test, which should hopefully arrive today. And hopefully by the time this podcast goes out, I'll know whether or not uh, I have the the COVID bug. Um, I feel fine, just so you don't worry. Uh, I'm not, I don't have any of the kind of difficulty breathing or any of the kind of scary shit. I just have a bit of a cough uh, and don't want to risk spreading it to anybody else. Anyway, uh, a couple of days ago, um, I went for a walk. Um, so I, I try to do a little bit of exercise every day. And uh, if I can't be bothered to go to the gym, then I'll go for a kind of half hour walk. And there are some fields nearby. And uh, I went for a walk to those fields. And uh, here's a nice surprise. While I was walking through those fields, uh, I stumbled across some cows. And I have recently started to find cows a little bit scary. So I think I can pinpoint where it came from, which was that a couple of years ago, I went for a walk with my good friend, Phil. And Phil confessed to me that he finds cows quite scary. And I uh, laughed at him because I thought I said that cows are the most uh, gentile, docile creatures on God's green earth. What could you possibly find to be scared of? And then he told me a story about how once some cows kind of stampeded towards him. Um, And I don't know how dramatic it was in real life, but certainly in his retelling of it, it was very dramatic. And since then, every time I find cows or I see cows, um, if they're not behind a safe fence, I find myself feeling a little bit kind of anxious about the cows. Like, what if they stampede? What if they freak out? And they are super gentle and super docile, but they're also really fucking big. And if one of them decided to have a go at me, I feel like the cow would win. I don't think I could take a cow in a fight. Could you? I don't know. But so anyway, I was I went on this walk and there were some cows. And luckily there was a fence between me and the cows. But the cows were right up close against the fence, uh, chewing away on the grass that was there. And I just had uh, a lovely, peaceful moment of connection with a living creature, which felt um, special and important to me at the time. I'd had a, It happens that I'd had a day that day of sitting in front of screens, which actually a lot of my days are kind of like at the moment because of the situation. Um, so I felt like even though my body hadn't been very active during that day, my mind had been super active and kind of overworking. And uh, I just needed to get out of the head, to, uh, out of the house, sorry, to clear my head for a bit. And meeting this cow and taking a moment to be quiet and to look at the cow and actually to approach the cow and give a little stroke on its nose felt really just peaceful. And for a moment, all of the noise, all of the background noise in my head, the kind of the, the, the chattering, the monkey brain kind of thing that was flitting around all over the place was just quiet. And just for a moment, I was in the present moment uh, with another living thing. And I forgot about all of the anxiety and all of the depression. I'm telling you that... Um, because I feel like anxiety and depression are just kind of in the air at the moment. It's been such a shit year for so many people that it just kind of feels like everyone's got a kind of little bit of background noise anxiety. Sometimes it's not background noise. I've, I've spoken to a few friends and co-workers this week for whom the kind of anxiety, the depression is really right up in their face and has evolved way beyond background noise to the point where they're really struggling to to raise their head above the water. Um, and I don't know, I guess we're, we're just kind of all feeling a bit weird and we've got the kind of 
24-hour rolling news all day, every day, telling us that everything is awful. And that moment with that cow just gave me a minute away from all of that stuff. And it felt nice. And I guess I'm not here to encourage you to do anything, but I, I have kind of encouraged myself to try to do more of that. I feel like sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that spending more time reading the news or spending more time on social media uh, will help to ease our anxiety, but actually it just fuels it. And so I'm going to try to, every day where I can, just get away from screens, get outside and just stop for a moment. Um, Cows optional. Um, This is a conversation with Sally Nash. Uh, Sally Nash is somebody who I've been aware of for a very long time, since before she was aware of me, certainly. I'm just going to mute my microphone while I cough. And I'm back. Um, Sally was a regional director for the institution where I did my undergrad degree some uh, 16 years ago, Uh, not at the regional center where I was studying, uh, but at another one. So I didn't work with her myself a huge amount in that time, um, but I was aware of her. And since since becoming aware of her, she's somebody who I've been slightly in awe of um, and possibly even, I dare say, slightly intimidated by because Sally is a big brain. She she really, really knows the field of Christian youth ministry. She's written numerous books uh, and contributed to even more. She's edited books where in which the, she's kind of compiled essays and people's thoughts on, on the field. She, for a time, oversaw the Grove Booklets Youth Work series. Um, in fact, is she still doing that? I don't know. I should have Googled that before. But anyway, she's really prolific and really knows her stuff and has more than one doctoral degree, as well as being a a priest in the Church of England. Um, And she's just somebody who um, is a a really impressive person. Um, Then recently, in the past kind of five years, she faced her her greatest academic challenge yet, which was supervising me uh, in my doctoral degree. So I got to know Sally a little bit better uh, through that and benefited from her huge knowledge of the field of course but just as importantly maybe even more importantly from her compassion and from her empathy and from her gentle encouragement over five years there were times while I was working on my thesis and doing the research when I felt like I was wasting my time, that I didn't really know what I was doing. I had that real uh, imposter syndrome thing that all of us experience at different times in our lives and really felt like I might as well just throw the towel in. But Sally, along with my other supervisor, Zoe Bennett, um, encouraged me and um, motivated me and helped me to see the worth in what I was doing. And I can say with some confidence that if it wasn't for Sally and also for Zoe that I wouldn't have finished my doctorate that I think I would have just packed it in uh, when it got to be too difficult. Um, But now I have finished it or I've submitted it. um, And I'm hugely grateful to Sally for that. Um, The other thing that Sally did recently was to publish a book um, called Shame and the Church, Exploring and Transforming Practice, which is the culmination of years of research, uh, which she's been working on, um, talking to people about the relationship that the church has with shame and shaming people. Um, and it's in some ways quite a damning book to read and quite challenging for the institutional church. It's also quite a hopeful book and one which kind of offers a way forward, I think, for the church. Um But look, I'm not going to talk too much here about the book because we talk more about it in the interview. So I'll let Sally speak for it herself rather than rather than me doing it on her behalf. Um, But do do check it out if you're interested in any of these things. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, It's it's a great book. And I was really pleased to talk to Sally about shame. I recently had a conversation with somebody at work who had found out about this podcast. And I'm always slightly self-conscious when people who 
I don't know all that well find out about the podcast because it feels quite personal to me and I reveal a lot of myself. Um, uh, I'm not wearing my kind of professional face while I do this. Um, but she asked me kind of what it was about and I described it as it being kind of like a, a form of therapy for me, a way in which I manage the baggage that came from growing up in a conservative evangelical uh, church setting. Um, so even though not every episode is specifically about religion, it's all about topics that are that have a messy relationship with religion. And shame is a perfect example of that. Um, growing up in that church scene, I experienced shame and guilt um, in in ways which I think are quite unhealthy. I'm just going to mute while I cough again. And I'm back. Um, so this is a conversation that I found really helpful. I found reading the book really helpful. And I, f- I hope that you will find it interesting and helpful as well, whether or not you're part of the church. Um, that's about all I have to say. Uh, just to say, uh, for the last episode, it was great to be able to include some original music by Matt. Um, I am not going to be able to do that every episode for the copyright reasons that I highlighted last time. Um, so I'm back to looking for kind of uh, royalty-free music online. And I'm really happy with a piece of music that I found this time. It's really cool. It's by an artist called Kubi or Cubby. I don't quite know how to pronounce it. K-U-B-B-I, who's on SoundCloud if you search him. Um, and the track is called Up In My Jam, brackets, all of a sudden. Um, and he says in the notes for it that it's inspired by the web cartoon Bravest Warriors and the TV show Adventure Time, created by Pendleton Ward. And those, if you haven't watched them, are S-tier cartoons. They are absolutely brilliant TV shows. And it's a really cool piece of music that he's written um, for it. So I hope that uh, the pieces of music that intersperse me and Sally talking, uh, I hope that you'll enjoy them as much as I enjoyed them. Um, and check out Kubi's SoundCloud. Again, I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, okay, that's it. Uh, first of all, over to Kubi, and then straight from that, over to Sally Nash. Should we talk about shame? Yeah, let's talk about shame. Yeah, it's a good thing to do on a Tuesday evening. Um, it is. I, yeah. as, as I already said, I am already recording, so um, we can we can kind of dive right into it. Um, and yeah. yeah, so let me start by saying that I read the book and um, I found it so uh, cathartic to read it um, because you give a language to an experience which I've had through throughout my kind of teenage and young adult life um, of, mm. of the kind of toxicity of the kind of shame that church can kind of breed in people. Um, but, but I was never really able to articulate that. Um, and I think I probably have told you at some point, you know, in, over the past kind of couple of years, I had a bit of a wall mental health wise. I went through a little period of depression and anxiety and um, yeah. it got pretty bad for a while. and had to go on medication and so on. And I spoke to a counselor and one of the things that emerged from counseling was just the kind of level of guilt and shame that I'm carrying with me. Um, and it was so yeah. in my first session of counseling, the, the kind of religion thing came up because I was working for a cathedral at the time. And I, I was quite dismissive of it as a topic of conversation. I kind of said, you know, I, I, I have got, you know, a past with, you know, in, in conservative religion, um, but that's in the past. I've really moved on from it. That's not really where I am anymore. I don't think that my faith causes me any problems mental health wise. Uh, and it only took a couple of sessions to kind of realize, oh shit, it, it really is still causing me problems. And I just didn't even know. So, um, yeah. yeah, so it was just... Just reading your book, I found so, um, yeah, just the language you gave it and the way you kind of articulated things, I found really, really resonated um, with my experience. So that, just wanted to say that off the bat, how how great I think it is and how how helpful I found it. Um, 
and thank you. I'd, I'd love to know what because you've been you've been doing some thinking on shame for for quite a long time I think right at the beginning of my doctorate before you were my supervisor um I remember talking with Joe Griffiths who was my supervisor at the time and she said that you were doing some stuff on shame so this is many years that you've been thinking about this stuff um and I just wondered what led you to to this point like what what got you interested in it and how did you get to the point of writing a book about it what yeah why shame really okay um the story actually starts over 50 years ago i was a chubby little primary school child and i think trying to be a creative teacher our teacher decided they wanted to work out the average weight of the class which meant going to the front, being weighed, and having your weight written up on the blackboard, and then calculating the average weight of the class. Um, that freaked me out so much. I lied, said I was ill, um, so went out and um, left the class. And um, when I came back, they were sadly still doing the exercise, and, and I lied so badly about what my weight was people were, were, were incredulous um, about it and that's is over 50 years ago now but it, it still is there stuck in my memory about in essence how an institution shamed me. Um, now one would hopefully, hopefully think about doing a risk assessment um, on it and realising that actually um, it, it's not the most sensible idea, although who knows, people might be doing it because they might want to shame people. Um, overall, the obesity thing and fat shaming is a, is a relatively common occurrence, sadly. Um, so I've been aware of um, of shame as an issue, um, although I would never have called it shame and didn't fully realise um, what it was. I've been, it, you know, it's been part of um, the background to my life um, for a long time. Ultimately, the simplest way of thinking about shame and guilt is that guilt is about what you've done and shame is about who you are. So I was ashamed because I was fat, um, because even at whatever I would have been, I don't know, probably eight or nine, I realised it wasn't it wasn't good to be um, fat. And I've been thinking about getting around to writing about shame um, for quite a long time and then... Uh, Eventually, I ended up exploring ordination training. And as part of my ordination training, I did a PhD on shame because they were lovely and flexible and allowed me to go off and do some study because I'd covered most of the curriculum in different ways and had taught it in, in yeah. different sorts of things. But I felt that if I was going to work for an institution, um, but I do think can be quite shaming of people, I wanted to have explored and processed my understandings of shame mm-hmm. that's um i i obviously read that in in the book the the thing that you write about mm-hmm. about being weighed um and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and um it's re- it's interesting I, I mean i found it uh quite quite an upsetting thing to read for you know for obvious reasons that that's such a traumatic mm-hmm. thing for somebody to go through and clearly it is because 50 years later you're 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 writing about it and still talking about it and processing it um and i was having uh, a drink with a friend of mine a while ago whose uh kid is in year nine i think at school i think she's 12 or 13 the girl and the school mm. we're talking about doing exactly that um today in the 21st century a secondary school here, yeah. you know, here in essex we're talking about routinely weighing young people um as a way of mm uh kind of tackling the obesity crisis or or whatever language they put on it but it i was having that conversation with that friend after having read that chapter in your book and just i mean the great thing is my friend's daughter has really kicked off against it and i I just thought good for her you know i'm really glad that she's kicking off against it and they've like you know the the, the students have kind of unionized almost and have written letters to the head teacher about why they're opposed to it and are tweeting about it and that kind of stuff so i'm i'm really glad that they're resisting it i'm really pleased that she's feels able to protest i don't think that shaming ever works over personal issues all it does is make us defensive um, 
you, you talk about things like sort of flight and fight, and I'm glad she's got a fight response to it. You so yeah. often people will, will get into a flight response, and it it doesn't really work. And uh, you know, as I think uh, you will obviously know, working in the field of mental health, um, issues around things like eating are not really usually just because one eats too much. There are all sorts of underlying issues where eating is the response. So for me, comfort eating has been my default coping mechanism mm-hmm. um, probably the, for my entire life. So if something goes wrong, um, my default mechanism is to grab some food. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I, I, it, 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 in the moment, it comforts me. Yeah, and I suppose the, I mean, it's it's definitely true with food, and I'm sure with lots of stuff that people feel ashamed about that if food is something that's offering you comfort, um, making you feel ashamed of your weight or or of your relationship with food or whatever isn't going to help make your relationship with food more healthy, presumably, because you'll need that comfort even more if you're feeling ashamed uh, and embarrassed. So it it seems a there's a kind of circular logic there that will, the, yeah, the idea that shaming people will actually help them when actually, presumably, it does the opposite. I think it does for most people. It, make, it makes you uh, more defensive. There's plenty of literature around sort of shame rage cycles, and I think a lot of the anger we see in young people is often um, shame coming out, and again, they possibly can't even articulate it as shame but it's um, that sense of rage because someone is attacking who they are. And mm. when, it's, when, when people attack who you are, there is very little you can do about it. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, that's, that's why we see things like rage or complete withdrawal or a range of other ways that people deal with, deal with their emotions. Mm-hmm. And I, um, you, obviously, you're your book is very specifically about the church. Um, and I mean, our conversation so far shows that, um, you know, shame is a, a factor in all walks of life, you know, outside of the church as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I wonder what it is. There's, there's something about certainly my experience of the church where th- there's a kind of, um, like almost like a kind of cognitive dissonance in the sense that there's a language of, um, you know, a God who loves you unconditionally and um, uh, Jesus who loves you so much that he died for you and thought that you were worth dying for and that you are loved exactly as you are. It's an unconditional love. So you don't have to earn it. And that's the language that's spoken. And yet the kind of the emotional, uh, correlation that comes with that language seems to be uh around a real sense of guilt and shame and that's that's certainly my experience I, I definitely remember as a teenager growing up um i i think probably most of my sense of shame came around um kind of my attraction to women and my sexual desires and that mm. kind of stuff. And I'd always been told that sex outside of marriage is wrong and that, you know, those, those feelings are not going to help you and just kind of felt guilty about those feelings all the time. And, um, as, uh, I guess a kind of 13 or 14 year old, uh, I discovered, uh, porn and kind of got into mm. that and, had this kind of horrible dual experience of on the one hand, pretty normal 14 year old urges of, you know, wanting to express and explore sexual desire. And on the other hand, a real kind of dark and scary uh, image of God um, as a God who was disappointed in me for looking at porn, who was angry at me, um, who would punish me. Yeah, so I had anxiety as a teenager. And for a time, I interpreted that anxiety as God's punishment for for looking at porn, essentially. Um, and I just wonder how, I mean, how is it that uh, an institution, an organization, a group of people who have at their heart this this beautiful language about being unconditionally loved and mm-hmm. saved and not needing to do anything to earn God's salvation can end up with such a toxic relationship with with shame um 
and often quite unawares, you know, making people feel ashamed without realizing. I just wonder whether you had any kind of reflections about that. I think there are several issues that come into play here. Um, one's the whole sort of purity culture thing, um, which sometimes I think is associated with um, with Christianity in the USA, but um, just this, uh, my teenage years were sort of shaped by what I wasn't allowed to do. So yes. all my faith things, you know, you mustn't listen to heavy metal, you know, there was just a whole range of, don't, 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 don't. Mm-hmm. With very little do, 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 um, do. And there was something about um, the whole thing about sort of um, being being pure, uh, being holy like God was. And if any, if you did anything um, outside of the, what felt like extremely narrow boundaries, and obviously sex was a huge thing um, in all of that there, you were therefore impure and um that, that made God um, angry. So I think that there's sort of that thing. Then there's the, there's the um, depending on which stream of Christianity you, you come from, there's the whole thing about how do you understand um, doctrine um, and to what extent, uh, what's the relationship between culture and doctrine and to what extent um, do the... Um, the, the well to do do God's laws um, should God's laws be interpreted in the same way um, now as they might have been in other times and just the whole thing about um, how do you translate a whole range of different words in a different culture that mean completely um, different things um, so if you if you take the um, if you take your understanding of God's laws love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself, then I think you end up with, in, in, a, in a different sort of place than if you take God's law as um, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount and you don't um, deviate from uh, those sorts of things. And I think some of us ended up in what felt like an extremely legalistic um, Christianity with what um, in transaction analysis terms would be a controlling parent and you basically um, try to please God and keep God happy. Otherwise, as you were saying, God would be extremely angry with you. And obviously, um, most of us um, as young people, you, that, that really doesn't fit with everything that you do as a young person, which is around pushing boundaries, trying to develop your own identity, um, trying out things, experimenting, all of this, the normal teenage adolescent development doesn't doesn't um, sit well for many people alongside a very legalistic God and um, conforming to lots of rules that are not the rules and some norms in the culture that you inhabit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am one of my favourite authors as you know because I used him a lot in my doctorate um is James yeah. Allison and um James yes. Allison talks about uh he um, well I haven't said that I'm just second guessing myself I'm pretty sure it's James Allison I'll have to check that before I publish it so I'm 90% sure it's him who talks about um uh the idea of a kind of system of goodness um and that uh what lots of religions do both kind of archaic religions and modern religions is it tells you uh this these are the steps you need to follow these are the things that you need to do so if you uh do these these few things and you avoid these few things and you do that for your life then you will earn your place in whatever it is the 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 kingdom of god or heaven or nirvana or whatever um and he Mm. says what what separates Christianity, what makes Christianity stand out is that Christianity is a critical reflection on that kind of religion. So the kind of Jesus story says, um, no, it's done. You, you are, you have already, you have your, your salvation. You've been, you are, you are already right with God. The work has been done for you. So there's no system of goodness for you to follow. There's no kind of, um, 
whatever 12 steps or or 10 even 10 commandments whatever for you to follow so that you can be saved because you're already saved it's already good you're already right with god whatever you do you're already right with god um which again really resonates with me and i can remember kind of going to christian youth events growing up um and even as an adult and hearing speakers more or less saying the same thing you know that god already loves you as you are you don't need to do anything um and yet somehow when in that context that message came with a subtext of but listen you should probably not drink or smoke or look at porn or <laughs> you know he, there's there was always a kind yeah. of uh a, a judgment barb that came with it somehow um yeah yeah which is is a is an odd thing to get your head around how how that message how the the Jesus message of you're you're already saved and you're already good and you're already right with me can be can become unconsciously this very kind of shaming thing um I was really interested in reading your book um in you you kind of write a little bit about the fall um the mm-hmm. fall I'll just so so um the most of the people who have listened to the past few episodes of the podcast aren't Christians, um, which, which is really cool. Right. So I'll just say, so kind of explain that kind of jargony language. The fall is a kind of Adam and Eve story. Um, and it's certainly in the church that I grew up in, the Adam and Eve story is a story kind of all about kind of guilt and shame. So God creates this beautiful paradise mm. for Adam and Eve to live in um, where they have everything that they want and, uh, you know, surrounded by beautiful nature and whatever else. Um, and uh, then it, as well as that, God gives them a commandment that says, but there's one tree. So you can eat from any tree that you want, but there's one tree which you mustn't eat from. And if you eat from that mm. tree, you're in trouble, basically. And then the story goes that uh, the serpent, who I guess represents the devil, talks to Eve and tempts Eve and Eve has a bite. And then she calls Adam over and she tempts Adam um, and then he has a bite. And then God comes back down and finds out what they've done and banishes them and kicks them out of the beautiful kind of garden of paradise. Um, And it's a story which, you know, we're certainly in the church and probably outside of the church as well. We're all super familiar with, we've heard it a a kind of thousand times before. And certainly I'm used to hearing it with a kind of um, a language of shame uh, associated with it. So um, Adam and Eve really messed up. And so God was really angry with them. And so that's why humankind should kind of always feel ashamed of itself because we do the same thing all the time that God gives us one simple thing to do and we mess it up. And that's why God's angry with us. Um, but in your book, you have a slight, you have a different interpretation of that. You talk about kind of Irenaeus's reading of it. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, about how you can interpret that story so that it isn't all about shame and guilt. Yeah, it was really quite interesting in, um, it, when I began to sort of dig down into sort of what other people had said about the story. And um, going back to um, James Allison, who you just quoted, he talks about um, original sin isn't part of um, Jewish doctrine at all. And the idea of original sin is that we're born sinful, um, so that we're, in a sense, we're, we're inherently sinful. But um, that that's not part of um, Jewish doctrine. And if you look at the Hebrew, no word for sin is used until Genesis chapter 4, which is well after we've got all the stories of, of Adam and Eve. And um, the the thing that I found interesting was the idea of um, that Adam and Eve were sort of children or adolescents, and moving out of the Garden of Eden was um, to enable them to grow into, into maturity. Um, Irenaeus um, talks about them being um, humanity being infantile um, in the garden, and um, if you if you look at the end of um, I think Genesis three, God God gives them clothes, and so um, Irenaeus describes God as um, as compassionate and merciful, and in a sense sends sends them out um, with what they need um, to go out and live outside of the garden of. Garden of Eden. So I find that a much more helpful um, 
way of understanding it that it's um that you know that this that um while there may have been consequences to her actions and um some people talk about the the tree of knowledge of good and evil being um being a boundary and the only way we can actually live with each other is if there are some boundaries and they in a sense um overstepped a boundary but actually to be able to grow and fully mature then um Adam and Eve needed to um live um leave Eden and go out and uh live in the wider world which I find a, a sort of much more um helpful way of looking at it and understanding that actually um the um uh, uh the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible and Jewish literature don't use the Adam and Eve story to explain the fall of humanity. And mm-hmm. generally, um, if, if you look at some of Paul's writings, he doesn't he 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 looks at other things really rather than the original creation story um, as well. I love I love the idea of um, the the kind of the, the forbidden fruit being being a boundary that was there to be broken. Um, and it just made me think just yesterday, I was having a conversation with a friend um, about uh, how difficult it is raising kids. I say that as somebody who hasn't raised kids, so mm-hmm. I don't know, but my friend had, and lots of my friends have. Um, and I was kind of reflecting on uh, growing up. I remember my parents having some, I mean, not outrageously strict, but relatively strict boundaries about what I was allowed to watch and what video games I was allowed to play and that kind of thing. And I can remember kind of sneaking downstairs when they were asleep to watch South Park or, you know, going over to my friend's house to play Grand Theft Auto and, you know, kind of watching these things, which I wasn't allowed to watch or playing these games that I wasn't allowed to play. Um, And I was kind of reflecting now as a grown up, I... I'm really grateful to my parents that those boundaries were in place because even though I don't think watching South Park or playing Grand Theft Auto has completely fucked me up, like I think I'm okay (laughs) for that. Um, I think not having had those boundaries potentially would have actually completely fucked me up Um, or having boundaries that were so rigid that, you know, I guess that they then led to, to shame or to shaming or if they were broken. Mm. Um, But the idea that, as children and maybe as humans, we need boundaries that are in place that we can push against and that that's not a thing to feel mm-hmm. ashamed about, but that's a thing that we have to do to develop um, and to grow. I find that quite quite an attractive idea, really. Yeah, I found, I found it much more helpful um, to look at that and to think of Adam and Eve as sort of uh, as adolescents and um, being someone with a youth work background, that that sort of that seemed to resonate um, a lot more um, for me. And mm. you know, I, I I do go back and read the beginning of Genesis where God looks on creation and saw that it was very good. One of the things I've struggled with in the church um, is the the prayers and things and the liturgy, which tells me I'm not very good because, like you were saying earlier. I believe I am good because of what Jesus has done. So I do. I, I believe that Jesus, you know, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus um, has made me right with God. So why do I have mm-hmm. to um, say words like I'm not um, I'm not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under my table, O Lord? Um, mm. But that that sort of thing just just grates with me. And I think in my experience, um, if you already feel fairly rubbishy about yourself, which you do if you're if you're fairly shame prone, why on earth do you want to go to church to say things which make you feel even worse about yourself? Um, that isn't yeah. how that isn't how I understand what happened when I um, uh, when I chose to follow Jesus, um, mm-hmm. I, and I I find it really difficult um, that we pray all these um, we, we, we pray things and say things and sometimes sing things. But um, if you're feeling shame prone or not great about yourself, just reinforces it all. And um, I, I'm not surprised that people stop coming to church because church just makes them feel worse about themselves. I think that's one of the things that came across most strongly in in my in my research is how some people have chosen not to go to church anymore because church makes them feel bad about themselves, and that that's. That could be bad about things which are 
often really quite neutral. So some people stopped going because they felt the pressure to, to, to do more. Um, and at various stages of life, we don't, we don't have the time, the energy or whatever um, to do more. And they, they felt sort of put upon um, or felt sort of the, you know, the sort of snidey remarks, the sort of the, the, the facing, you know, you know, if I say, oh, it's lovely to see you again, Tim, um, mm-hmm. That might make one th- one thing, but I can say it in such a way that that basically sounds oh lovely to see you again. It, uh, about time you got your, your butt back to church. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think and I think that you know, I think sadly um, people in churches, uh, you know, we're, you know, we, we are all poor, but um, just reinforce some of the you're not really good enough to be here. You're not mm-hmm. quite what we want, and I think one of the one of the challenges I've had. For many years in the church, was I'm I'm not quite what people want. Um, yeah. I mean, fortunately, gender stereotypes have moved on an awful lot since I was in my teens and twenties. But I was always very very aware I wasn't um, um, I wasn't the stereotype of a charismatic evangelical um, young woman, which is what I would have been um, yeah. in my twenties. And and it, it's very shaming to feel. That you're not what people want, and you're not what people are looking for, and you know you're not, um, yeah, you, you don't fulfil their expectations. And uh, you know, as I've got older and more experienced, I've realised that you know these aren't God's expectations; these are cultural, often middle-class cultural expectations um, yeah. put put on people, um, made to appear or sound Christian, and, and they're just not. They're not biblical. Um, they're, they're just a, a sort of a, a cultural expression of faith, and to conform to that particular cultural expression of faith, if you, if you don't, you feel shame. So you feel you're not um, you're not who other people want or expect you to be, and that's really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I mean it's um, it's interesting. I had two thoughts then as you were talking. One was about liturgy, and one was about the kind of the oh, it's nice to see you again, Tim moment, um, and. Yeah. Liturgically, the the you know when we when we read words like "I'm not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under your table" and and that mm. kind of thing, um, mm. I there are moments in my life when I found reading that those words quite liberating um, because mm. it, I the, I think there's the potential there when it's done right to to actually rather than communicating you should be ashamed because you're a bad person um it can communicate a kind of the pressure's off no one's expecting you to be good um we are we're all of us messed up um in here look we're all saying these words together we're all messed up like it's so it's okay for you to be messed up um and like i say there's there's times in my life i mean often when i've been going through you know personal difficulty or mental ill health or whatever when Mm -hmm those kind and not maybe not specifically those words about not being worthy to gather up the crumbs from under the table but Mm. but that kind of liturgy i found quite liberating because it kind of makes me feel like yeah okay good i don't need to pretend i don't need to pretend here um but what i found much more difficult to um kind of personally uh and emotionally is what you just described to that kind of it's really nice to see you again tim and what the what the subtext of that comment is. Um, and yeah. I, you know, having grown up in the kind of charismatic evangelical kind of scene and then moved away mm-hmm. from that as I've got older, um, does mean actually that I've lost some friends. Um, and the, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously there are friends who I've lost uh, just to, because you get older and your lives drift apart and that's just kind of what happens. But I, I have experience of people who, um, from that scene, see me as now kind of a lost cause because I'm one of those liberal Christians now. And actually, that's almost worse than being not a Christian <laughs> um, because I should know better. Um, yeah. And I've kind of done all right with it. But I've, I certainly I've got friends. I've got one really close friend who went on a similar journey who's not in the church at all anymore. She, she kind of left that all mm-hmm. behind. Um, and she's essentially been kind of blacklisted by some of her old friends, you know, who yeah. now don't reply to messages and, you know, completely right. shun her. Um, and it's so, it, I mean, it breaks my heart uh, on a personal level because it's upsetting to my friends, but also kind of theologically, because 
we talk about a Jesus who says, judge not lest you be judged. You know, that's really core. That's really fundamental to the faith. And yet we've created cultures which are almost defined by how judgmental they are. Um, And I mean, wow, how much have we missed the point, you know, if that's what we're doing? Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, I've probably got, I've got friends um, across the the, the full spectrum um, of Christianity. And I would, I, I imagine sometimes that um, everyone thinks I'm unsound um, because I, you know, I, 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 I relate to people in, you know, in, um, in all camps I've got, you know, um, but, but I, you, you are, um, I, I think you're right in, um, in, in what you're talking about. I, I've seen it happen where, where people get dropped, um, if they, um, Express things. One thing. One things I was saddest about, I think, in my um, in my research, is the people who felt they um, couldn't be honest, couldn't be authentic, couldn't speak their mind, um, got judged, etc., for um, choosing a slightly different perspective. Um, uh, most of my data is anonymous survey monkey questionnaires um, plus mm-hmm. focus groups. Jobs weren't anonymous, but are anonymized in the book, and I, you know. I, I have people who feel shame at both sides of the church, and I quote them in the book. Of some people feel shame because the church is too liberal, and some people feel shame because the church is um, too unloving. And you know, I think for, for some people, one of the things that has been most difficult um, is to be associated with an institution that has behaved so shamefully over some of the big issues of the day. And I think safeguarding. Um, is one of the things that came out in my research particularly. I, I tried not to major on it because obviously that you know it's, it's, an, it's an enormous thing but um, there, the, you know it, it was significant that um, for some people being associated with an institution that made some um, less than helpful choices um, and took particular perspectives was just devastating for them. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, and that, that's why I have quite a few friends who will say they're followers of Jesus or something, not not Christian, because they they they've been associated with the institutional church, even if they go to an institutional church, um, feels like it comes with a lot of baggage um, of what people hear when you say things like that, because in a sense, the way that um, some sort of church-related issues are. Um, Sort of mediated through um, through through newspapers and headlines and television programs mm-hmm. and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, ultimately for me, that's one of the reasons why I uh, kind of left the world of church youth ministry because um, mm-hmm. I, um, I mean, as well, you know, obviously, like I said earlier on, there were personal reasons, and you know, it's time for a change, and I wanted to move on, and that kind of stuff. But I think one of the one of the things that really pushed me was just a kind of sense that, you know, every time the Church of England was in the news, it was because of something that I just felt really embarrassed about, like something I didn't want to be associated yeah. with, you know, or some some kind of, um, you, you know, the, there's um there's a way in which I think the Church of England has mastered um being kind of politely bigoted <laughs> um so we'll talk mm. at you know um you know general synod and that kind of stuff about how important it is to address homophobic bullying but then yeah. you know really remind people that we're still not really a place where gay people are really all that welcome um and will mm. appoint women bishops um but still enable sections within the church who feel like women shouldn't be at the head of the church. Um, and so we've got this kind of, yeah, yeah. I, I ultimately found that something really hard to manage. And so, yes, yeah, so anyway, that's a, that's a waffly way of saying that ultimately one of the things that contributed to me leaving working for the church behind was just that kind of thing of, I just, I'm so tired of every time I go to the hairdresser and they ask me what I do for a living saying I work for a church and then wanting to follow it up with, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those. <laughs> um, I'm quite nice and I've got gay yeah. friends and they're okay. Yeah. Um, and 
yeah, yeah, it's difficult. Um, I, I at one point in your book, you um, I found it really interesting, and again, I really resonated with this so strongly. You talk about that it can be easier to be a Christian around people with no faith than around other Christians, um, which seems kind of relevant to what we were just busy talking about. Do you want to say a little yeah. bit more about what kind of what you meant by that? Um, it's actually a comment by someone in the focus group who was actually ordained. Um, okay. Interestingly, um, I think it comes back down to some mis- some mis- um, judgmental stuff and um, people's expectations um, of you. Depending on what Christian group you're with, um, you know, this will sound a little bizarre, but um, I I tend to try to be conscious of where I am when I pray, and I use different okay. language in my prayers dependent on my context. Um, because yeah. in some contexts, um, gendered language for God is not really acceptable. And in other contexts, um, female language for God is very unacceptable, um, etc. Et and it, it, and it, you just some, sometimes you feel, and it sometimes is possibly my feelings, it may, may, may be wrong, um, but that Christians are more judging of you. Um, because they have expectations of you and what you should be like. I think when when you're in ministry, um, lay or ordained, I think you know people ex- sometimes expect you to conform in particular sorts of ways. And I found I've apologised for things, and you know that it, it's just you know if you have too nice a meal out, or is that good stewardship of your money? Um, yeah, I've never had a flashy car, but um, you know uh, <laughs> there was just just all. It feels that people can make public comments on your life um, if you're in ministry, particularly if you're in the sort of ministry where, in essence, the people you work for sort of pay your salary, um, either directly in some church context or indirectly because there's money in the offering and it goes to someone and it comes back to the church. And they, they somehow there's this liberation to comment in a way that isn't true um, of people who aren't in ministry. Um I mean, that, that, again, that, that's probably a little bit of an over, over-generalisation, but my experience is people, you, if you are in a public role, people feel more able to make comments about your choices and your lifestyle than if you're purely in a private role. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting reflection uh, that um, ties in with the conversation I was just having earlier today with somebody who I think will probably be a, f- a future guest on this podcast. And... Um, just we he and I both have experience of um kind of having leadership ish roles in the church he he was a minister and mm-hmm. I was a youth minister and and both of us now have kind of left those roles behind to do uh roles that kind of still embody the ethos and everything that we believed in but kind of outside of the church and theological language mm-hmm. um and what you just described is something that we both shared with each other the kind of sense of um that there was guilt about enjoying anything nice in life um because like anything that was enjoyable was probably not the best use of resources and could somebody else really benefit so like you say going out for a nice meal or um you know like so for me my my kind of um uh, weakness is I, I like gadgets and tech and that kind of stuff. So buying a new mm. phone or, or, or even buying a new pair of trainers or whatever would, mm. and I don't know whether this actually came from other people or whether it's something that I projected onto other people, but I would always have this sense of, I know, I know, I know I probably shouldn't have spent this money on this. And I know that this money could have been used to, to feed the homeless um, and to, to do better things. Um, and, and maybe I'm just weak. Um, but then I was reflecting after hanging out with my friend, um, kind of as I was walking back, um, that, well, who's the character in the Bible who uses that line? 
uh, well, it's Judas, isn't it? That, that, that when, mm. when the woman comes in with yeah. expensive perfume, yeah. it's Judas yeah. who's like, who, who, who isn't the hero of the gospel stories, put it that way. He's the one who goes, yeah. um, well, this money could have been spent on better things. Um, and yeah. it's, it's a really, it's a really tricky thing, that one, because this kind of, well, technically, yes, you're right. Technically, I, you know, if I hadn't bought a 50 pound pair of trainers and I had donated 50 pounds to Oxfam instead, that potentially on the grand scheme of things would have been a better use of my money. So technically, yes, you're right. Um, but it's the kind of, again, it's the, it's the making a person feel ashamed, feel judged, feel guilty. Um, and, and I guess kind of unfree, I guess you, you know, if that's your way of thinking, then you're, you're forever kind of feel because where do you draw the line at that point? You know what I mean? At what, what isn't excessive, what isn't, uh, you know, something that would have been better off using the money to feed the poor or whatever. Um, yeah. One of the things I always found difficult is um, in, in queuing students for Christian ministry courses is having to reassure them, you know, you know, if you're a single parent, please don't worry. We will still accept you, and and, and a whole range of you know other, other sorts of issues of people feeling fearful that they weren't acceptable um, for different yeah. things that had happened to them um, or or in their past, and you know having to sort of try to reassure them. Yes, we um, we accept them, we welcome them, we affirm um, who they are in God, etc. It, it, it saddened me immensely that people would come to an open day or an interview day um, thinking they may be rejected. And, and sometimes these were things that, which were of no fault of their own at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And almost, yeah, like you say, feeling like you almost need to preempt that somehow. Um, I can remember yeah. once being at a service. Um, I can't remember what it was, but there was something something that had happened I can't, I can't remember quite what the backstory was, but anyway, there was there was a the, the priest at the front of the church, and and the church was pretty packed because it was in the wake of some some big event, which I can't quite remember what it is. Um, and the priest at the front of the church was saying, and essentially said the words, "And let this be a sign that the Church of England—I don't know if he said the Church of England—let's say the church is open to all, and we and loving to all, and welcoming to all." And I was sitting next to a really good friend of mine who's gay um, and mm. just just kind of felt those words felt slightly hollow, um, even though yeah. the priest who was saying them absolutely wasn't a homophobic guy um, and was a really cool guy and was, uh, in my mind, on the yeah. right side of that argument. Um, and, you know, even though probably mm. most of the people sitting around me wouldn't have had a problem with my friend who was gay sitting next to me. But... Just there's something about the institution of the church and our relationship with uh, same-sex uh, couples um, that made those words feel kind of almost almost ironic, you know, almost kind of bitter because yeah. well, clearly, as much as we might all want that to be true, clearly it's not true. Um, and I wonder actually that maybe this goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about the use of difficult language in liturgy about around not being worthy and, and that kind of thing that maybe rather than trying to kind of buy into the kind of language of positivity, which is all around us, you know, it's a language of marketing and branding and that kind of stuff where everything we do has to be great all yeah. of the time. If we were able to, as an institution, um, acknowledge that we haven't been good at this, and that when we pray, we're not worthy to gather up the crumbs from under your table. Um, to think mm-hmm. about that in a kind of, on an institutional level, maybe as well as on a personal level, that we have collectively really messed mm-hmm. up here and we've collectively really hurt people. I think that could be quite a powerful yeah. um, message to send, you know, that it's rather than pretending we're really good at this when we aren't, to, to say something, you know, liturgically or outside of the church to say, you know, we're, we're not good at this actually, and we need to be better. Um, yeah, that would be really powerful. I think.
conscious that I've I've kept you for just over an hour and I don't want to kind of keep you all evening, but it would be really great to um we've we've talked a bit about uh how how toxic the church can be in terms of making people feel shamed and that kind of thing. Um but I I have a a real faith that the um, the Jesus story and the stuff that's at the core, at the heart of Christianity can be a bomb to soothe guilt and shame. And that when done well, faith can, can help people to come alive and, and be free and not be trapped by guilt and shame. And I guess, I guess what I'm asking you for, and this isn't a question that I prompted you for, so I'm, I'm putting the pressure on slightly, um, but actually you cover it in your book is where's the, where's the hope in this? Where, wh- how do we, wh- where's the kind of, where's the light in, in everything that we're talking about? Does that make sense? Yeah. For me, the light is in um, getting into the Bible yourself and reading the stories of Jesus and seeing how he treats individuals um, who maybe have done things wrong. So, um, I think one of the sort of the, the most obvious shame stories is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and I think probably even less regard, well regarded as a tax collector might be these days. And um, you know, he climbed up a tree to see Jesus. Jesus pointed him out, called to him, and went to his house um, to eat with him. So he let Zacchaeus, someone who would be, be seen really bad, um, badly by those around him, he went to his house and, and um, in a sense sense affirmed him. So I think if we if we read the Gospels ourselves, um, we see how Jesus um, deals with individuals um, like us who may have um, got things wrong. And um, my my view is really that Jesus doesn't shame individuals. Um, Jesus does shame the political leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and people like that. Um, but um the the for me the bible has so many stories of people who felt shame um and god um in a sense redeems that shame and honors them i haven't used the word honor yet in um in eastern cultures shame and honor are sort of um uh, tend to be um opposites and shame and honor are collective things your shame is um uh, your shame and your honour are sort of are public in a way that it's much more privatised. Um, but I, for me, when I read the Gospels, I see Jesus honouring um, ordinary people in difficult circumstances and restoring them and transforming their lives. Um, I, I often joke with students that the um, there's a story in John 4, which is colloquially known as the woman at the well, it's a woman who'd um, had a series of partners. Uh, she meets Jesus at the well and um, Jesus tells her about her life and um, she, um, her encounter with Jesus transformed her life and she goes back to tell everyone she's met this wonderful person, Jesus. And I think that is still possible today. And I think um, if we can, um, in a sense, share those stories in a healthy way or encourage people to read them to themselves, they will see themselves in some of the characters of the Bible and see see the loving, compassionate, restorative, transformative Jesus um, in them. So that that for me is, is the hope. My hope is in that that people recognise Jesus for who Jesus is and sees the way that Jesus treated people um, and realises that when the church don't pe- treat people like um, Jesus does, um, it's the church that's at fault. Um, and shouldn't dismiss the faith on the basis that um, some people who call themselves Christians act in ways that um, aren't very um, loving or gracious. Mm. That's uh, something you said there that really struck a chord with me was um, the the thing about Jesus' kind of um, venom being directed towards the religious and political leaders of the time um, mm. and his uh, his overwhelming compassion being for the people who had been trodden upon by the religious and political leaders at the time. Yeah. And I just wonder if, if the Bible were, uh, 
you know, if, if the Jesus story were being written in the UK in the 21st century, you know, in the current political and religious climate, um, I, I, I'd like to think that Jesus compassion would be directed towards LGBTQ people, towards single parents, towards, um, anyone who's kind of been shamed by the church and perhaps that his venom would be directed towards again church leaders religious leaders uh and political leaders um rather than those people who've been kind of made to feel small by those people <laughs>